Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm really excited to be joined today by Dr. Jim Woody, the CEO of 180 Life Sciences. Jim, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Alok. It's my uh, pleasure to be able to join your um, biotech podcast. I think it's not only a privilege, but an opportunity to discuss our, our programs. And I'm very pleased at that. Awesome. Well, we're really glad to have you. And you know, maybe to kick us off, would love it if you could just give us a quick intro on yourself and your background. The story uh, starts out with my working with Dr. Mark Feldon for a PhD degree at the University of London, where they're working on human immunology because I'd done bone marrow transplants and everybody died with graft versus host disease. And it was obvious we didn't know what we were doing at the time. So spent a couple of years there learning about human immunology with him and then came back, but eventually came to be a chief scientific officer at Senecor, one of the very first antibody-driven biologic companies run by Hubert Shoemaker. Our first product was a thing called Syntoxin. It was an anti-endotoxin antibody, supposedly useful in sepsis. And they uh, had a trial that looked promising. The FDA required an all-comers trial. Syntoxin failed. The company went from 60 to 6 in one day. The Wall Street Journal had a picture of a toilet with a lightning bolt, and they called it septic shock. <laughs> that was just kind of a harsh beginning for the first three months I was at Senecor. And then we developed Reapro, the very first of the platelet inhibitors in that whole market, which now is captivated by Plavix and all the other oral drugs. But we were the ones to show platelets were important in cardiovascular disease. We had this antibody TNF. At the time, all of the conventional wisdom was that, and your colleagues at the Beth Israel and all around were convinced that sepsis was caused by TNF and that if we just treated patients with anti-TNF, they would magically arise out of their beds. Well, I treated 40 patients or 50 patients with the first time with an anti-cytokine inhibitor with sepsis and nothing happened. Several companies repeated that experiment and uh, it never has worked in sepsis. So the conventional wisdom, while it was interesting, didn't turn out to be correct. And so my friend, Mark Feldman, uh, based on human tissue studies, says, I'm convinced that TNF is causing the destruction in arthritis. And so we set up a trial of uh, 20 patients in uh, London with rheumatoid arthritis. They were all largely in wheelchairs. And uh, we gave them our antibody. And within a few hours, they told us that their pain and their fatigue was gone. And uh, several of them actually got out of their wheelchairs and did a dance. We have a video of this. It's a little like, I don't know if you ever saw the Robin Williams movie Awakening, where they gave the people the L-Dopa that were uh, spastic and they all woke up. Well, it was very similar. These people got out of their wheelchairs and now uh, we've treated over 30 million patients. There's no patients with wheelchairs uh, in the whole world because of the anti-TNF drugs. It's been a huge success. And we did the same thing in Crohn's disease and psoriasis. And J&J bought Senecor and did very well off of the uh, Senecor sales and Remicade still selling for $5 billion a year. So it's been a very good product for them. And now there's all these uh, probably five major TNF inhibitors and 20 biosimilars coming along. So Fortune claims it'll be a $150 billion industry by the end of this decade. So I'm pleased for the patients and the success. It's been a, a great drug for patients, even children. I'm a pediatrician. Uh, 
kids with rheumatoid arthritis can finally spare the, uh, the disease as it goes forward. Wonderful. It sounds like a great story. And I think it certainly tees up well to 180. Do you want to spend a little bit of time on 180's therapeutic areas of focus, maybe the vision, how it came together, financing, et cetera? We came back together about a year ago, Mark Feldman and Larry Steinman and I and Jonathan Rothbard from Stanford here. And Mark and his colleagues have been working on other uses for anti-TNF outside of what everybody's following, which is rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's psoriasis, ulcerative colitis, and a few other things. But almost all of them are focused on those. And what their researchers found was in certain fibrotic conditions, it was TNF that was driving the fibrosis. And they learned this by testing uh, human tissues and determining which pathways were driving the uh, production of the fibrotic molecules. And uh, one of the conditions is called Dupuytren's contracture. And what this is, it starts out in your palm with a small nodule. And over time, maybe uh, six months or even a year, the nodule starts to form cords and it pulls your fingers together. And eventually you have to have some remedial therapy for the disability because you can't type anymore. You can't button your clothes. You can't play an instrument. You can't do a lot of the things that you'd like to do. Currently, they do steroid injections, which aren't very uh, successful. There's a collagenase called Zyaflex, which they uh, can inject to try to eliminate the cords, but uh, it has a 50% recurrence rate. Since we know what's driving this, our anti-TNF, we think, will prevent the whole contracture process. So we finished a trial of 181 patients, the largest Dupuytren's trial ever run, half treated and half placebo. We'll have the data in Q4 because of COVID and getting the patients in and actually doing the precise measurements of the outcomes from the injections. Well, we'll see if it works, but it's pretty promising because the science is so strong. So that's our first product. And another one that turns out to have a lot of fibrosis is called frozen shoulder. About half of these people have Dupuytrens as well. So we think the fibrosis process is quite similar. And we'll be treating them by injecting anti-TNF into the shoulder joint because this is extremely painful. You can't move your shoulder. It becomes really frozen. You can go to surgery, but it takes several months to recover after that. It's very expensive. So we think we can prevent this as well. So those are two conditions where TNF was never envisioned to be able to work until our scientists figured it out. And the third indication is quite interesting as well. This is postoperative cognitive dementia. And what happens in patients who are a little older who undergo, say, hip replacement surgery, especially if it's an emergency replacement, or they undergo cabbage procedures, coronary bypass graft, we found that the tissue damage in those surgeries releases a lot of TNF. And the TNF does go to the brain and activates macrophages, creating quite a lot of inflammatory cytokines in the brain. And we think that causes the dementia. And there's some animal models to suggest that that's the case. So we'll be treating patients undergoing surgery with anti-TNF just before they undergo the surgery. And we'll then measure whether their dementia continues. About 30% of people have dementia that's persistent for several months and a fair number of them end up in nursing homes and have to be cared for. So this is not a great outcome post-surgery. And most of the uh, surgeons and anesthesiologists blame it on the anesthesia, but we think it's actually the TNF will demonstrate that that's the case if our trial is effective. So those are our first three products. They're quite exciting. They're very novel indications for the use of anti-TNF. 
our people have been thinking quite far out of the box in terms of uh, where we can go with this. And uh, there's several other diseases. NASH is another one where the liver uh, eventually becomes totally fibrotic. It's a huge problem. And we have research going on with the cell gene and BMS in conjunction to have a look at whether TNF is driving this process as well. We have some uh, innovative things going on as a great team. Can I ask just a really quick question, which is, when you look at the juxtaposition between a single asset versus a platform and the allocation of resources in those sort of scenarios in the area of focus, what you've described to me so far is that the perspective and the assets you're developing have a platform potential, but also very specific indications that you're going after. Help us think about that tension. Yeah, you're right. Platforms are great if the products work. In Senecor's case, we were able to sell the company to J&J for a little over $4 billion with a single platform drug. We had the background for making other things, but that was the fundamental. And Larry Steinman sold to Sabri, who I think it was to Amgen or Neurocrine, I can't remember, but about $3.5 billion for a single product drug that works. I think the fundamental here is the product has real clinical benefit for the patients. And if it has that, it sells. It doesn't matter if you have a platform or a single drug. If it works, you are in good shape. Now, it's nice to have several drugs that work, but for companies, uh, one has to focus, do what you think you can do with the funds you have, make sure that the trials are actually benefiting the patients. And it's recognized not only by the clinicians, but the patients as well. I still get calls uh, probably every month or so. People said, thank you for Remicade because their Crohn's disease is gone. They can now live a normal life. That's powerful. It's amazing. Now that you're obviously off to the races with 180, curious how you're seeing the future of the company evolve. Is it really just focused on anti-TNF? Are there other broader ambitions that the company has? Curious to hear how you're thinking about that for the future. You know, we're working on inflammation, fibrosis, and pain. So anything under those categories, I think we would like to work on. The next set of projects we have are in the cannabinoid area. And we're working with Dr. Omishel in in Israel, who is actually the discoverer of the human endocannabinoid system. And he's a master at making compounds and things that mimic uh, CBD. So we're making totally synthetic CBD compounds that will be able to bind to probably most likely the CB2 receptor on the immune system. And we know that this uh, reduces pain and we're pretty sure it reduces inflammation. So we wanna make these orally available, easily absorbable, and be able to treat patients with anti-pain medicines that aren't addictive. There's no psychoactive components like you see with the -the over-the-counter CBD. The -the over-the-counter stuff has a hundred different compounds in it often. So it's not very uh, specific. So that one's coming along. We have two or three lead candidates we're working on. And uh, hopefully in uh, next year, we'll uh, get those into patients. But that, again, adds into our inflammation and fibrosis area. And our next project, running by Larry Steinman and Jonathan Rothbard, they found that uh, alpha-7 nicotinic agonists are able to activate the nicotinic receptor That's an anti-inflammatory receptor. And they found, interestingly enough, that certain patients who stopped smoking developed ulcerative colitis. It's a small group, and it's because the nicotine kept the inflammation under control. And so uh, we're going to actually treat those patients with our compound and see if we can reverse the uh, inflammation. It's a small group, but it'll be representative of a broader inflammation use. That one's in lead compound selection as well. 
Then we have other things coming along, IL-33, anti-TNF receptor. So there's two TNF receptors. There's a one called TNFR1, which is inflammatory if it's bound. And then there's TNFR2, which is anti-inflammatory. So the next generation of TNF inhibitors to get away from the infectious disease risk or the oncology risk may be to focus down on totally on stimulating the anti-inflammatory receptor or alternatively blocking the inflammatory receptor. So stay tuned. Awesome. When you were mentioning the different programs, one of the things that I thought was very interesting is that some seem to be monoclonal antibodies. While when you were talking about, say, CBD, obviously it's more small molecule. Curious if you could help us understand how an organization can span those different modalities, given that the mechanisms of action, the engineering of them are so different. I don't see it as a problem because uh, at Senecor, we developed probably four or five antibodies. Some of them didn't work, but I know how to do that, how to get the INDs together, how to get the trials done. And then, you know, I went and ran Roche uh, in Palo Alto after they bought it. It was the former Syntex. We had about 1,200 research people there, and we filed probably 20 INDs on small molecule compounds. So I'm very familiar with how that process worked and uh, what you need to do to put together a small molecule program and file the INDs and get the trials going. So whether it's a biologic or whether it's a small molecule, the fundamental phase one, phase two, phase threes have a lot of similarities. Uh, it just has to do with largely at the manufacturing and uh, make sure you get it right. Uh, and that's the uh, usual rate limiting step, select the best molecule, make sure it's specific. The nice thing about antibodies is they generally only do one thing. So in general, you don't have a lot of off-target toxicity. And uh, that's not the case with small molecules. If you've followed the Jack story in arthritis, they're running into all sorts of off-target toxicities that nobody ever anticipated. And that's a dilemma with small molecules. While you hope they're specific, in real life, they rarely are. Antibodies are good. Oncomed, which I started as CEO, we developed five antibodies and ran probably 15 antibody-based clinical trials for anti-cancer stem cell antibodies. They're all good. <laughs> I guess you're trying to just pick the right uh, tool for the job, I guess. Yep. I was wondering if we could maybe switch gears a little bit away from the science, but more towards the process of starting and building life science companies. I know many of our listeners are very keen to perhaps pursue a similar path. I'd love to just hear a little bit about the founding story of 180 and maybe what lessons you might want to share with the broader audience about how to start a biotech. You know, in starting a biotech, there's several parts to the startup. One is that you need to identify the science that you think is actually relevant and accurate. and It'll lead to patient benefit, whether it's in a university or whether it's uh, somewhere else. I've spun out several companies from universities with phenomenal technology and ideas. Some were, some didn't, but that's kind of the basis. And then you assemble your team of people who uh, know how to build these things, how to do the science, how to do the correct experiments so that the data that you're generating uh, allow you to actually build a drug. And then you have to raise a lot of money because none of these things are uh, inexpensive these days. Raising money is uh, challenging. You have to be ready for a lot of rejection, but you know, life is like that. You just don't give up until you get all the pieces together, which is uh, what we're doing here. So I, I guess the fundamental is get the science right, get your initial team right, that they can present this in an effective way and convince people that the idea 
uh, concept, the science is correct, and that it's going to lead to something that's beneficial, not only for patients, but also in earning uh, revenues back to the investors, which is kind of a fundamental interest of all the VC groups. So those are the fundamentals, I think, are the compulsories that you have to overcome. By any chance, have you had to raise any capital during COVID over the past year and change? Our company was spun out of a SPAC, and uh, the SPAC had some money that uh, in uh, November when we went public came into the company, but not a lot. So we're in the process of raising a round of funding right now, and we're in discussions with the uh, investment banks as to how best to do this. Turns out to be a very good time. The uh, market's very attractive these Mm -hmm. days, and they're quite enthusiastic about going out at this particular time. You know, it's uh, certainly, I think, a great time to be both in this industry as well as on the public markets. It's interesting that you mentioned SPACs. Uh, That's certainly been a hot topic, at least in the tech world, which I spend more time in, but would love to hear what that experience was like coming from a biotech lens. Well, you know, I've been involved in IPOs and M&As, and this was the first SPAC I, uh, I dealt with. This one was especially cumbersome because 180LS was a merger of three different companies. The one that came out of Israel and the one that was in the UK merged together with the US company. And so it was the full employment act for auditors and accountants and and lawyers to put all these pieces together and get all the stocks sorted out and everything. It took a long time, took a well over about a year and a half to get this all done and enable us to go public. Other SPACs, I think, that are much cleaner, I think, can do the process quite quickly where uh, the cash is there and they want to uh, acquire the company. And that works pretty well. In another company I started called Byracta, which is actually just going public from a reverse merger, uh, we entertained several SPACs and uh, that would have been an option as well. And these were very clean SPACs where it was clear what needed to be done. So, you know, the process, if all the pieces are clean and clear, actually could work very well for both sides, both for the SPAC investors and also for the company. As a, a CEO and leader, How would you weigh the pros and cons between a SPAC versus sort of a traditional IPO? Or I know reverse merging has been modestly popular in the life sciences industry. Curious which financing mode uh, or transaction type you prefer. Well, I think if your program is strong, the uh, IPO market is uh, probably the best where it's everybody knows how this works. There's no unknowns, uh, assuming they're your products and your programs are in good shape and uh, make a lot of sense for the investors. So that would be my preferred route. It costs you, you know, a few million dollars to get the IPO together, but then it's pretty clear sailing because you can raise money after the IPO on a whole range of uh, financing of vehicles. Uh, reverse merger is a little more complicated because you have to deal with another company and their shareholders and your shareholders, but it works as well as long as everybody's in agreement this is a good idea. Then uh, M&As are even uh, more preferable, assuming the price is right and people actually pay the milestones, which has always been a challenge. That's probably the biggest challenge, the thing that was most surprising that uh, some people will try very hard to get out of paying milestones and they'll go to no end uh, to do that. But that's why you have more lawyers than uh, and accountants, I guess. So it's, that, I guess the, the joke is hire a law firm to start, you know, uh, <laughs> go, go, go from there. Then the, uh, the SPACs, uh, like I said, this is the only one I've done, but they could work. This was just an exceptionally difficult one because of the merger of three companies. Certainly a lot of uh, discussion in the broader community about the best way to both uh, raise capital and and think about the public market. So sincerely appreciate you walking us through uh, that framework. Before we close out here, one thing I'd love to understand from you is 
as a leader and as a CEO of a promising biotech, the world of COVID has certainly changed the way leaders have to communicate and manage. I was wondering if you could share any insights or best practices you've gleaned over the past year on how to do it in this highly remote and virtualized world. I think we all uh, have become accustomed to coming in in the morning and sitting down and you start your Zoom conferences that sometimes go all day long. And uh, that's not good for mobility, but it is uh, effective and it works. In my case, because of where our companies, our, our, our Zoom conferences are over five time zones. It's always tricky to set up a, a call because of people in the UK and Israel. And I got one guy in Bermuda now. It's a small challenge, but you overcome that. With COVID, the dilemma that we're both having and the, the company that I was talking about, Viracta, was that because all the clinicians were tied up treating COVID patients, we couldn't enroll any patients. And uh, if you have a company with a burn rate and you can't enroll patients, this is a death spiral unless you can uh, fortunately raise a lot more money because your burn rate doesn't go away. You can't let your key people go but you're not enrolling patients to move the progress ahead and uh, have the disclosures and milestones discussed and be able to present them without patients. And everybody ran into that. As I talked to the people at Amgen, they were saying the same thing. They've got all these trials going on with this giant burn rate and uh, couldn't enroll patients. And so it was a dilemma for the whole industry. Now, it's beginning to uh, recover now, but still, in our Dupatrin's trial in the UK, all of our patients were injected and all of them are being followed up, but it's delayed us probably three quarters just to get to the patients and be able to measure the benefits of the drug. That's been a uh, difficulty, but hopefully with the uh, Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines and the uh, others coming along, we'll eventually get immunized population and can, can move ahead. Great. Well, a great sage advice, and I think certainly speaks to the potential of new philosophies like virtualized trials and other sorts of activities as well. So, you know, Jim, with that, would love to thank you for being on the podcast today and for sharing both uh, your personal story as well as that of 180. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by Malok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.